0: I'm Pastor Aaron Shepard, and you're listening to the sermon podcast of Union Congregational Church, a caring community connected through God, loving and serving all along life's journey. We gather for worship each Sunday at 1015 a.m. in our sanctuary at 55 Rhodes Avenue, next to Bird Park in East Walpole, Massachusetts. You can also join us from anywhere online via our live stream by visiting facebook.com churchbythepark. For more information about our church and its ministries, visit churchbythepark.org. Now here's this week's message.
1: The first scripture reading today is taken from John chapter 11, 55 through 57, and then John 12, 12 through 19. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and were asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Surely he will not come to the festival, will he? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was should let them know so they might arrest him. The next day the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, and it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. The Pharisees then said to one another, you see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word.
0: Before we proceed to our second scripture reading this morning, Just a reminder that throughout this year, we have been following this sermon series where we've been telling God's story and our story, hearing how these stories weave together in our lives. Throughout this series of Lent, uh, we've been in a sub-series called Re-Lent, regarding Lent, and we've seen how the symbols and practices of this season draw us more and more to notice the notice of God And that's true this morning as well, when we paraded into this sanctuary, just as it says in Scripture, living out John's gospel here in live and living color. The the joyfulness, the exuberance of that hymn, that is all just a taste, of course, of what is coming next Sunday on Easter Sunday, because Easter is coming. And there will be bunnies, and there will be colored eggs. Hey, Jetty. You get lost? (laughs) See, in church, the lost shall be found. (laughs) There will be bunnies. There will be eggs. There will be beautiful music and beautiful flowers. Easter Sunday is a day of joy. It is a day full of life, full of the goodness of God. It is a wonderful day. Uh, in which even if we were silent, Jesus reminds us, the rocks would cry out because all of creation bespeaks and vibrates with the power of God, no more so than on Easter Sunday when God's glory bursts forth. But before we get there, we are not done with Lent, and Lent is not done with us. And so as you hear... This scripture reading this morning, as we hear it together in John's Gospel, keep in mind, keep in mind one of the things Nancy said earlier, that even the disciples didn't understand all that they had heard or all of the events of this story until the whole story had been told, until the Son was glorified. Keep in mind, too, that Jesus is in control of how events are unfolding in this telling of the story, and keep in mind what I just told the children there a moment ago that God is God, and that all we are about to hear is happening in accordance with God's purposes and God's power and for God's glory. Let's listen now for God's word for us here today in the 13th chapter of John. Verses 21 through 30. After saying this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and declared, Very truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he was speaking, and one of the disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him, and Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask Jesus, of whom he's speaking. And so, while leaning over next to Jesus, he asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After Judas received the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him then, do quickly what you are going to do. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this. Some thought that because Judas had the common purse, Jesus was telling him, buy whatever we need for the festival, or maybe that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the piece of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night." This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Travel and tell no one. Live a true love story and tell no one. Live happily and tell no one. People ruin beautiful things. These are the words of Lebanese-American writer and poet Khalil Gibran, and though they are dark, they are, I think, a fitting frame for this second scripture reading here today. If only the crowds had told no one, then perhaps Jesus would not have had to die. If only the many people who had been there at Bethany and experienced this amazing, wondrous sign of Lazarus, who was four days in the tomb, dead and buried, coming out, coming back alive, smelling like roses. If only those who had been there to witness this, who experienced the miraculous movement of God in their midst, if only they had just kept it to themselves. If many had not come to believe and then to testify to those events, then perhaps Jesus would not have died because people ruin beautiful things. We heard some hints of it this morning, but immediately after the story of the raising of Lazarus in John's gospel, there's this rare departure from the focus on Jesus and his disciples, and we get this scene among the pharisees and the high priests in jerusalem and they're gathered together because they've heard about what jesus has done how he has raised lazarus from the dead if it was true and they didn't doubt it was true they realized that this jesus of nazareth then posed a great threat to them that the counselors were worried about the threat he posed not just to the nation or to the temple, but to their power as religious authorities. Indeed, as Nancy read, the Pharisees recognized that the whole world appeared to be getting in line with Jesus and this radical proclamation of God's saving grace. And so the high priest prophesies, he says, that indeed it would be necessary to sacrifice this Jesus, to hand him over to the Romans, lest they take his coming as the king of the Jews to be a serious threat and in turn retaliate and destroy the people of Jerusalem, destroy the temple. For the sake of the nation, the high priest says, one must be sacrificed. John's gospel is clear that it was, at least in part, the jealousies of these small men in high office that created the conditions for a plot against Jesus, against the truth-teller and the love-bearer, And indeed, they even hatched a plot against Lazarus, too. Because after all, Lazarus was the living proof of the thing Jesus had done. There he was, beautiful and alive. And indeed, out of jealousy and ignorance, they wanted to ruin this beautiful thing. Then before Jesus went to Jerusalem, John's Gospel records another significant episode again in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany. Jesus is there, he's having dinner with his friends as he was wont to do, and while they're eating, Mary comes into the room with a bottle of perfume. She pours it out on Jesus's feet and wipes his feet with her hair. It is an act of service and of grace, and it's a costly one too. We're told that the perfume cost 300 denarii, 300 denarii, which is 300 days wages. And Judas Iscariot, who was there, and as we heard, is the, is the treasurer of the congregation. He, he has a question for Jesus because he sees this obscenely expensive perfume being poured out. And he says, couldn't we have sold this? Couldn't we have sold this perfume so that we could give the money to the poor? But the narrator of the gospel tells us plainly that it wasn't out of concern for the poor that Judas had said this. The text tells us Judas was a thief, that he was greedy, that he was self-centered, that all he cared about was money. And indeed, that is how Judas Iscariot is depicted in all four of the Gospels to some extent or another. His betrayal of Jesus is often described as having been carried out for the price of 30 pieces of silver paid out by those corrupt religious authorities. And so, so we see this very human element these very human motives behind Christ's betrayal and suffering and brutal death upon a cross. There is jealousy and the lust for power from the high council and greed in Judas's heart. People do indeed ruin beautiful things. But while these other characters are scuttling around in the corners, making plans and plotting their schemes. Notice the character of Jesus. He is utterly in control throughout this gospel. Unlike the other gospels that tell the story of Jesus' passion as a time of great torment, we get a little bit of that when it says he was disturbed in his spirit, but for the most part, Jesus Jesus understands what is going on. There is not a whiff of doubt or uncertainty in the way he proceeds through these events in the midst of all this chaos swirling around him. John's gospel, for instance, does not record some dark night of the soul out in the orchard in Gethsemane. Jesus does not fall on his knees and pray that God would take this burden from him. Jesus does not cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No, throughout John's telling of the good news, even in the most painful and harrowing moments of Jesus' passion, Jesus is perfectly aware of what is going on and firmly in control. And there's one moment in in the Palm Sunday story that is particularly telling. It's a little thing. But it says, that, it says that Jesus found the donkey. In every other story, Jesus sends the disciples off to go get him a donkey, bring it back, and then he'll ride it into the city. Uh, in, in Luke's version of the story, Jesus doesn't even tell them exactly where to find the donkey. He just says, like, go get me a donkey. I think I saw one back there somewhere. You can figure it out. Yeah. He trusts them. He relies on them to do that for him. But here, no. Jesus gets the donkey. Jesus rides it into the city so that the prophecy may be fulfilled. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that the signs and wonders he performed throughout his life and ministry here on earth would shock people. He knew and he wanted them to see the power and the glory of God, to know that he was heaven-sent and of course, the people didn't expect that. They kept wondering, surely he won't come to Jerusalem during Passover. He can't be that foolish. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew what he was doing. It was never the intention of Jesus to keep who he was secret. No, he actually said it from the beginning. He said that the Son of God would be lifted up and glorified before the people so that the world may come to believe, and in believing, the whole world may be saved. Jesus neither wanted nor expected the crowd to tell no one. Quite the opposite, in fact. Jesus wanted us to tell everyone about him. But he also knew what that meant. He knew that people ruin beautiful things. He knew that someone would betray him, that he would suffer, and that indeed he would lay down his life. And yet, he also knew that in that sorrow, God would be glorified. When Jesus shares this knowledge with his disciples, he has just finished washing their feet. It's a a shocking event as much as any of the others. It's a reversal of the power dynamics in the room, the teacher and students reversed, the master and the servants reversed. He showed them what true power really looks like. What really glorifies God is not status or or wealth, it's humble acts of gracious love, as tangible as water and a cloth scrubbing the dirt off a smelly foot. That is God's glory. And so Jesus washed his disciples' feet, all of them, including Judas, and then he said, one of you will betray me. He dipped the bread. He dipped the bread. It's a strange choice of signs to point out who it would be. But we know this sign We're familiar with it. We're familiar with Jesus taking bread and breaking it and giving it to his disciples. Back in the before times, we used to do from time to time communion by intinction, which is where you would take a piece of bread, you would dip it in the cup when you came forward to have communion. Of course, now that's a public health hazard. but we recognize the sign. This is communion Jesus is sharing with Judas. Even as he says, this sign, this symbol that we so associate with God's love and grace, now this sign is the means by which the betrayer is identified. This is a scandal. But of course, that is what betrayal looks like. It is when love is turned into a weapon. From time to time, people do indeed ruin beautiful things. Or perhaps it isn't people at all. You see, we never actually meet people. It's easy to write off people in general with things like saying they ruin beautiful things. We don't, because we don't know people. We just know one another. We know Carol and Jacob and Christine. We know Jim. Jim doesn't ruin beautiful things. Jim creates beautiful things. If you were here yesterday and you heard the concert here yesterday, you know beautiful things. But people, people is an abstraction. It names something, something we know is out there but we don't necessarily always want to pin it down to someone in particular. And so we see here in John's Gospel that when Jesus hands Judas the bread, the Gospel says Satan entered him. And yes, Judas may have had his flaws. He may have been a thief, but it was Satan, the Gospel says, that ultimately would betray the Son of God. And I know, in a liberal Protestant church like this, we don't like to talk about Satan. And that's probably because most of us, when we hear the word Satan, picture little guy with red horns and and a tail and, and a pitchfork sitting on your shoulder telling you to do bad things, right? Satan. But in the biblical context, of course, Satan is a proper name but it's also a generic noun, kind of like people. Satan just means enemy or adversary. It names something abstract. In his book, What Shall We Say?, the Reverend Dr. Tom Long explains that in the ancient language of scripture, evil has a cosmic and transhuman reality Evil is not just a failing, it is a force that is present in creation and palpable in our experience. That's what that term Satan indicates. He goes on to say evil is not merely a problem, evil is a mystery. Problems can be solved, but evil is permi- pernicious and resists our solutions its persistence, even in the face of our best efforts to mature as a human race, to build a just society, is a deep mystery. A mystery that we can experience and explore, but we cannot solve. Why are missiles falling on Ukrainian children? Why does cancer ravage our friends, and our relatives? Why are there so many who are hungry and who are homeless? Why do so many no longer trust in the church? These are very human problems, of course, but their persistence in a world created by God, a world that God calls good, it's a profound mystery that these problems persist. Long tells a story about a new minister who at the beginning of her pastorate sets out to visit all of the members of her new church. She goes around, she gets down through the list until there's just one couple left at the bottom of the list. And one of the church officers tells her, leave them alone. They haven't been here in two years. They're, they're not coming back. But the minister goes, anyway. And she happens to find the wife at home, and they sit down and they have coffee together. And she explains that two years previously, their infant son had died in a tragic accident. And she says, our friends at church were very kind to us, very kind. They told us it was God's will. And the young minister set her coffee down on the table, and decided whether or not she wanted to say something, and then said, yes, I'm going to say something. And she says, your friends at church meant well, but they were wrong. It wasn't God's will. God doesn't will the death of children. And the mother, she got angry. She said, well, then who do you blame? Are you blaming me? Is it my fault? Is that what you're saying? No, no, the pastor responded quickly. I'm not blaming you. But I'm not blaming God either. God was as grief-stricken by your son's death as you are. Indeed, God knows the pain of losing a son acutely. But by the look of anger and anguish on the woman's face, it was clear that the, that the pastor probably needed to end the conversation. And so she left and she felt like she might have said something wrong But when she got back to the church, there was a voicemail from the woman on the answering machine. It said, I don't know where this is going, but my husband and I want you to come and talk to us about it. For two years, we've thought God was angry at us, but now we wonder if it's not the other way around. You see, God is love. The gospel tells us that over and over and over again. God is love, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't have an enemy, an adversary, something that God truly grieves. We can call it Satan, we can call it evil, we can call it sin, but whatever we call it, we know it. We know the things that grieve God's heart. We've seen it in the betrayal of a friend, whether it was their betrayal of us or our betrayal of them. We've experienced evil in the loss of a loved one taken too soon. We've experienced moments, perhaps in things you have done that seem to make the rest of life unbearable that we regret immediately and deeply when our highest joys become our deepest sorrow. We know that experience. Those moments when dipped bread, the symbol of God's grace, is turned into a sign of hostility. And the question, the right question, is why? If Jesus is in control, if God is good and worthy of our praises, then why does this evil persist? And that question is indeed a stumbling block for many It's the question that opens the chasm over which many are unwilling to leap in faith. Why, of all the ways in the world, is it on the cross that through the death of God's own beloved child, salvation comes? Why this way? And perhaps you expect an explanation or an answer to that question, but I don't really have one today, except the same one I shared with the children earlier. God is God. God's ways are not our ways. The world's ways are the world's ways, and God's ways, those are not our ways. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth used this phrase, God is God, to to respond to all the theologies of his day, theologies that tried to explain away and account for Evil and and the goodness of God in in ways that made sense and were consistent with our reason and, and our human nature. But Bart realized the emptiness of those kind of learned, abstract explanations. In the end, the only answer to the question why is God is God. It's not even an answer. It explains nothing. And yet it says everything. Bart realized this when he was serving as a pastor, when he was living with and experiencing the joys and the tragedies of the folks that he was in community with. He realized that instead of following Christ by some inborn natural instinct or even some rational system, that following Christ requires faith in a mystery that is both beautiful and good, even as it is disturbing and tragic. And so, to follow Christ, especially in this holy week that we begin here today, is to trust in the God whose praises we sing, who stands against betrayal and against suffering and on the side of love that knows pain and yet endures. To trust that a light shines in the darkness. And in John's gospel, that is where the passion narrative begins. At the end of our scripture today, it says, it was night. It was night. This Lenten journey, this, this time in the wilderness, it comes to its end in darkness. In the dreadful night when darkness closes in. And so we let it close in so we can see it for what it is. Again, the poetry of Khalil Gibran is instructive here. It gives shape to the darkness. Your joy is sorrow unmasked, he writes. The selfsame well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is not the cup that holds your wine, the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit, the very wood that was hollowed with knives? Some of you say joy is greater than sorrow, and others say nay, sorrow is the greater, but I say unto you they are inseparable. And all of that is true all of that speaks to our very human experience people do ruin beautiful things evil and sorrow abound but god is god joy is joy tell everyone easter is coming thank you for listening I hope that God's word has come alive and blessed you today. If you want more information about Union Congregational Church, once again, feel free to come and visit us on Sunday morning or online at our website, churchbythepark.org.